this is Ken. Welcome to God is Not a Theory. Uh, this week, Grant is not here to make the announcements, although he may join us later in the podcast. Uh, on the show today, I have my very dear friend, Avner Bosky. I've known Avner now, I, I've sort of lost track, but at least 35 years, and it may well be nearer to 40. Um, Avner and his wife, Rachel, were part of our home group back at the Anaheim Vineyard way, way, way back in the day in the last millennium. Um, Avner is uh, a resident of Israel. He is a biblical scholar. Uh, he's never really joined the official rabbinate, but I like to call him a messianic rabbi. And uh, I've, had, I've asked him to come on to the show today because there's so much talk going on about uh, what's happened with Hamas and Israel. Uh, we were tied up, as many of you know, with the fusion uh, event, and I, there just was no good time to do this sooner, even though things were urgent. And things are settling in now into the longer war, the ground phase. And I wanted to have Avner come and give many of us a historical perspective on this conflict and also maybe a forward-looking view as well. So Avner, with all of that preamble, welcome back to our podcast. It's so very good to be with you, Ken. It's a delight always. <laughs> so you, I, I see your library in the background, and I've been in your home in uh, in Beersheba. I can't remember. Is this inside of your bomb shelter, or is it outside of it? No, our bomb shelter is downstairs. That's where we have our recording studio and our film studio. Okay. I, I remembered seeing it. I just couldn't remember if you had your, your own uh, library and whatnot down there. All right. Well, so Avner is coming to us. Uh, from Beersheba, and again, I'm just thrilled to have him on the show today. So um, I'm going to I'm going to feed you a series of questions, Avner, um, and I'll I'll cue you approximately how long to to take on these. But let's start out by talking briefly, or maybe a little more than briefly, uh, about the history of the emergence of Israel. And I want to go back to the Balfour Declaration because this third term is being thrown around. A lot of people don't know what it is. Um, and there's a whole history that runs from the Balfour Declaration of, if I've got it right, 1917, uh, that runs straight through until the Israeli withdrawal from Gaza in 2005. So it's, it's about a 90-year period of time, not quite 90, but, but close enough for government work. And there's a ton of things that are very significant events, which actually shape the modern situation, and most people know nothing about them. Maybe take five or ten minutes to walk us through all that. Well, I will try, you know, it's fast food, but it's still good, you know, like yeah. McDonald's. If you um, need to take longer, we'll go longer. No, we could no. always turn this into two podcasts. We can do it shorter, too. <laughs> the, um, I'm going to differentiate at the beginning between two things. One is, what do the scriptures say? And two, what do we learn from history? Sometimes, as believers, we don't know what the scripture says, and so we come at it from a certain perspective, which could be representing uh, the U.S. State Department, or it could be representing the British Foreign Office or or whatever. Uh, so the first thing I would say is I, I always want to be uh, overshadowed in my understanding by what the Scripture talks about. And the Scripture does say that in Ezekiel 37, among many other places, because remember, the Bible is like 95% written by Jews and 95% of the subject matter deals with Jews. Although mostly it's used as a devotional book in the Gentile wing of the church. Uh, but having said that, uh, 
Ezekiel 37 says God is going to bring the Jewish people back. So he's doing it without the Holy Spirit, says of verses 9 through 11. But yet it's a work of the Holy Spirit to their own land. So already we have a line drawn in the sand, which is going to influence how we see what the superpowers do. So back a long time ago, <laughs> when uh, nobles spoke with a British accent, there was a term called the Great Game. And the Great Game talked about the imperial uh, aspirations, let's say, of Britain in the Middle East, which has basically it's fallen away and America has stepped in uh, and with problems like Afghanistan, etc. And so when Britain came in, they were basically like vultures with Germany and France. America was not in the picture. Uh, feeding on the body of the rapidly decaying Ottoman Caliphate, which gave up the ghost at the end of World War I, which is very significant for Muslims because the Caliphate, uh, the Khilafah in Arabic, goes back to the way the rightly guided rulers are supposed to rule the world for Islam as an Islamic dictatorship. And that collapsed at the end of World War I. So that's huge for the Arab world. And it goes in various directions. And we're dealing with some of that blowback. So what happened is Britain came in as the Germany and France. They set up embassies in Turkish-ruled Jerusalem. And the whole idea was they wanted to get a little hook in there. So like Ezekiel 38, if you'd like, and to be able to then maybe take over when Turkey collapsed. And the one who won in uh, the area, which is today called Israel, were the British. The French won a little bit in Lebanon and Syria. That continued until they were thrown out. Uh, the Germans didn't win at all, although they made it into the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark from that time. And so when the British took over this area, for them as Protestant evangelicals, because that's still the official religion in England, this was throwing off the yoke of Islam, which had come in through jihad in 635, 638, and establishing a Western-oriented colony, British colony, but throwing out jihad. Now, again, how did Arabs get into Israel? They got in through uh, rape, murder, kidnapping in 635 through 638. It wasn't their land. The Bible doesn't say it was their land. The Bible says it's the Jewish people's land, but they came in that way. So when it talks about occupying a land, absolutely right. The Muslims occupied the land of Israel, 635 to 638. They came, yes, sir. I was just going to ask you a clarifying question. So what you're really implying is that jihad has not changed in more than 1,300 years. Uh, it's simply maybe upgraded its weapons. Yeah, and, and to understand that, one has to, you know, there's a short and long answer. I'll give you the short answer. Unitarianism does not really represent biblical Christianity. And when you talk about Muslims who are secular or, or profligate or pagan living in the West, that doesn't represent the source documents of classical Islam. According to classical Islam, jihad, they call it sometimes the fifth pillar of Islam. The whole idea is we have the truth. Here is the prophet. We need to spread it. We're evangelical. It's good news. And we're going to spread it whether you like it or not through the point of the sword. That is classical Islam. And so when you talk about someone like Osama bin Laden, 
people need to understand that within the Muslim world, he's called um, Al-Asad, the Lion of Islam. He is yeah. like Luther is to the evangelical church. He is purifying and reforming Islam to get it back to its Quranic roots. So what we see with Hamas is not a travesty of Islam. It's what Surah 7 and Surah 8 in the Quran describe should happen to jihad, which is uh, raping captives, uh, killing the men, uh, burning the area, enslaving them, being willing to negotiate hostages maybe, but it's this is it. you got to keep doing this for the whole world. That's what they're doing. From their lights, from their perspective, they are faithful to the source documents of classical Islam. That's hard for the West to understand. Not only that, I think there is also um, the embedded in the idea of jihad, the, the, the further idea of being a martyr to the cause or to the faith. And consequently, uh, when we see these fighters, whoever they may be, um, I think many of them actually are quite willing and ready to die on the battlefield uh, or in an airstrike or whatever, uh, because they believe themselves to be prosecuting the very nature of their faith when that happens. If I can use a California movie to illustrate that principle, when Alec Guinness is Obi-Wan Kenobi about to get sliced by Darth Vader, he says, if you kill me, I will come back, what is it, a thousand times more powerful. That's yeah. their perspective. And there is a spiritual point behind that, and that is sacrifice and blood releases power. And you have this with the king uh, uh, in Moab, who Divon, Dibon, who sacrificed his son on the walls, and it says this terrible thing came upon the Jewish people in that. So yeah, they say jihad is kill and be killed. They look forward to this. It's like the jihad games, you know. Yeah, and and the other thing I think that that comes with that then is we should not expect that we are going to uh, turn the minds of jihadis through what we in the West would call reasonableness uh, or concessions. And I, I've noted on some of the other podcasts I've made or short little videos of late that in the, in the couple of years prior to this event of October 7, where Hamas crossed out of Gaza and invaded Israel and uh, slaughtered 1,400. I don't know, is it exactly 1,400 or is it about, or what's the number? There are so many bodies. They burnt kids. They tied kids up and burnt them to death. Um, they hacked people to, to like one person who's a German-Israeli girl, uh, they only were able to find out that she was killed when they found her head separately from her body and were able to do DNA testing on this burnt head. We're talking about a, a huge, horrific tragedy. And so right. the numbers are changing. I was talking with someone who's actually working with those bodies. We're all kept in fridges and freezers, and they take them out, and they one at a time every night, you know, for five, six hours, they're going through trying to find the DNA. It's that bad. It's wow. like trying okay. to find the results of 9-11 with the people on the ground. Yeah, okay. All right, so roughly 1,400 might be a little higher, could be a little lower, but that's the number that's being used right now. Um, so we have all these people that, that were slaughtered um, in this incursion, in this 
uh, in this invasion. And when we see this, um, what, what many people have missed is that in the couple of years prior to October 7, the Israelis had actually loosened the grip that they had on the border crossings between Gaza and Israel, and I think also the West Bank and Israel, allowing uh, Palestinians to come in and work in Israel because they can make 10 times the wage in Israel that they can make at home. And I think I heard the number they'd issued 10 times the work permits. So what was Israel doing? They were engaging in a Western way of thinking. Let's see if we can buy the peace. Let's see if we can negotiate. Let's see if we can be more reasonable. And with that, maybe they'll be more reasonable and maybe we can de-escalate this thing. And instead, it got to a point where the de-escalation was now viewed as a moment of weakness and Hamas pounced on that with, of course, the full backing of Iran. And, uh, and this is what you get. All of that to say, it doesn't appear that the standard Western way of negotiating is the way to think about this problem. I can tell you a personal story. About six months ago, my wife Rachel and I went out to get some shawarma, call it gyros in the States or shawarma, at yep. a, a little suburb outside of Jerusalem. And as I'm waiting for my order, who walks in for his order but the head of the Israeli Shabak or FBI? And I've always wanted to ask him a question. Uh, you know, Israel's a smaller country. People can talk to each other. It's not like a 20 people who look like they're out of men in black in front of you. And uh, so <laughs> I, walked, I walked up to him and I said, listen, uh, I saw you in this movie, The Gatekeepers, and I noticed various things. And I had two questions if I could ask you. And he said, sure. I said, one. Could it be that you as heads of FBI and Mossad underestimated the influence of the spiritual aspect of Islam and jihadi Islam as you were dealing with people in the West Bank? Now, again, he's a secular person. He doesn't believe in God. He doesn't, uh, he's not into things of the spirit. And he said, yeah, you're probably right on that. And so what it is, again, and we notice this when we look at the leaders of our own countries. How many of the leaders of our own countries really believe the scriptures have a biblical point of view? It's not like right. it says in the scriptures about the king of, of the Jewish people. He has to make his own copy of the Bible by hand. He has to study it every day. You need to be committed to that. Of course, not most kings were that way. But this is the challenge. And so when, when you don't have that going on, you know, it, it creates a lot of difficulties in understanding and sizing up the problems. You know, it's funny. I ran into a similar situation a little while back when I was in business. I went to China and I negotiated a business contract that literally every other telecommunications company in the world was after. And I got the contract and it all happened. I'm condensing heavily. Some people on the podcast would have heard this story, but it all happened because they brought out these various foods and I was participating in them. When I tell people what these foods were, they kind of retch and gag. But anyway, I learned a long time ago, if you want to honor people, eat their food. And so when in Rome, do as the Romans do, or when in China, do as the Chinese do. The last thing they brought out were these uh, steamed goose feet. And they were stuck in a pot with the, the bones down and the webbing up, you know, kind of like so. And I was told as the guest of honor, I could select the first foot. And this was all through a translator, and it was a very good translator. This is not where you get your friend to translate. I had a diplomatic level translator right by my side, and I'm, I'm negotiating with a four-star general who is the head of all communications and signals for the entire nation of China. 
and uh and he had his entourage and i had mine and so here we are we're having this this negotiation and i reached forward and i i, I kind of paused and i'm considering which foot should i grab and of course the logical western thing is grab the one nearest you you're just eating a foot you're going to nibble on the you know the uh skin it's like chicken skin really uh between the various bones on the on the foot that'd be the logical western way but i paused and i just a second and then i reached for one that was not an obvious logical one to grab and i pulled it out and as soon as i did they all started pointing at me and jabbering away in chinese of course i don't speak any chinese <laughs> so i turned to my translator and i said what's going on and he said you just won the concession this was like a five billion dollar contract and i said how did that happen he said you picked the foot with the best feng shui and they realize that you are the only one who has come who has spiritual power. And they want somebody who has spiritual power to be in control of the communications network. And consequently, they are awarding the, the, uh, the concession, the license to you and your company. And I said, you're kidding, right? And he said, I am not kidding. This is happening right now. And so there are many parts of the world where this spiritual point of view whether it's in Islam with the whole jihadi ideal or in China with the feng shui ideal, this is actually how people think. And we don't tend to have this in the West because we've been secularized over several centuries. And in addition to that, we're largely apostate. And so the very idea of honoring anything sacred or holy has largely gone out of our cultures. There's a good Hollywood movie called Charlie Wilson's War. And the concluding yes. scene in that movie shows, again, a total lack of understanding of what America was dealing with, with an ancient culture and a strongly Islamist culture. And yes. this is part of our problem, too. We're Westerners in, in Israel for the most part. We're very pro-Western. And the concept of dealing with a rapacious, murderous Islamist power is something that Half of the Israeli populace didn't really believe it, and now we do. Yeah. So there's a ground shift going on here where we're saying we can't have bin Laden as our neighbor. It's just not going to work. We have right. to go beyond Torah Bora. We have to go beyond Hiroshima. We have to go beyond Dresden. We have to get rid of these people. They can go wherever they want, but they can't be next to us because we cannot live literally as long as they're next to us. That's right. And to be it's clear, it. when people say that, they're thinking about Hamas and its entire organization, including the fighters, but not limited to them. They're not particularly thinking about just your rank and file Palestinian, except to the extent that a Palestinian becomes radicalized and suddenly becomes part of Hamas. Yeah, the, one of the difficulties, you know, in Russia, they used to say, we believe in elections, one man, one vote, one time. When Hamas came in, they then see the whole thing as an Islamist state. So the education, uh, everything that goes on is controlled by people like the Ayatollah Khomeini. That's the way right. it works. And so these kids are raised. What's their summer camp? Their summer camp is to go out and practice killing Jews. You've got a whole culture which has been infected by this. When Jews are killed in, in uh, on October 7th, people went around everywhere with demonstrations, handing out sweets, dancing for joy. 70% of the people in Gaza have said, we uh, would vote for Hamas. We believe in what Hamas is doing. We're going to be at war forever. And so 
it may be a little bit uh, less than forthright for some people who are maybe high in uh, government in various countries to say there's a huge difference between Hamas and the regular Palestinian. Unfortunately, yeah. the spiritual influence of 1,400 years of murder in the name of uh, that religion uh, has some blowback. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is why it's so important for us to be talking about this. And I know for some people it's hard to hear, in part because they've heard the sort of standard Western narrative about how Muslims are really peaceful people. And admittedly, some are. I mean, if you go to Indonesia, uh, Indonesian Muslims are of a different type than Wahhabi Muslims. Um, we're not going to get into that distinction right now. But but the point is, there is some difference there. And I think I think fair minded people need to recognize that. But when we deal with uh, with this that is called Hamas or for that matter, Hezbollah, they're not the same. I know that you know that and I know that uh, we may get into that a little later in this podcast. But but the bottom line is when you deal with certain branches of Islam uh, and certain people who are following certain uh ways within it we are not necessarily at all talking about peaceful people and to the extent they act peaceably it's because all of that is just anticipating their next move which will be violent and so i I think i think a takeaway from everything we've said here um, and feel free to you know comment as needed but it seems that with the ending of the ottoman empire at the end of the second world war Um, And the Ottomans had held sway since the fall of Constantinople in 1453. So we're talking 1453 to 1918. That was the caliphate. And there was a particular type of Islam that was manifest through the caliphate, um, which included, among many other things, the besieging of Vienna and the attempt to take uh, Europe. And that was only beaten back because of uh, I would say extreme heroics and uh, and great bravery on the part of those who were the defenders of Europe. Anyway, we get to the end of the First World War, and this is really what I wanted to say. So that was 1918. Here we are in 2023. It's 105 years ago. Most people don't even think about the First World War anymore, uh, except maybe on Veterans Day. Uh, and they still hold some some remembrances in Europe. But but really, the, that 105 years that we've been in, or maybe not even all of 105 years, because Hamas was created in, what, 1987. Um, so that interlude from the ending of the First World War to whichever line we want to draw uh, in the more current period, that's really an anomaly. The, the Islam we have seen, where it's more quiescent, where it's not been as aggressive, where it's been maybe subjugated to the powers of the west and forced to behave a little better that's an anomaly and the fact that it may be the normal you're accustomed to doesn't mean that it's truly normal yeah it's kind of like if you take the abortion issue in america and you say um would abortion have been acceptable 150 years ago and then you say, well, if you say you're a Christian or a Catholic or a Protestant or whatever, and you say, well, I'm for abortion, what do those who are more conservative and evangelical say? They say, you're not really towing the line in terms of what we understand Psalm 139 to say. You're not towing the line. And so 
this is hard to understand, but those who are really zealous for, for the Quranic Islam, they believe that most leaders in the Muslim world are apostate, including yeah. Egypt, including Morocco, and they believe they need to kill them and establish an Islamic dictatorship. Their influence here, just to give an example, for nearly 38, 40 years, we never had a wall between us and the West Bank. We travel freely, back and forth, everybody. But when Hamas started infiltrating the West Bank in the in the, you know the late 90s, early 2000s, we had buses blowing up, people coming into shopping malls and blowing up. And Israel said, okay, we've lived without a wall for 40 years. We like Arabs. Some of us do. Some of us don't. I guess it's like any group, Italians and Puerto Ricans. Maybe they like each other. Maybe <laughs> they don't. But that's not the, the point. It's not an Arab-Jewish issue. It's an issue of jihad versus us being able to live together. And right. that's really important. That's only the only time the wall went up. So the concept here of oppression and occupation, you know, it means people don't know the history of what went on here, and they don't know the biblical prophecies about what's coming down the pike. Right. I've said in multiple locations that um, I'm sure in the affairs of nations, all nations have made mistakes. We killed as a nation, America, I believe it's 90,000 uh, civilians in the Afghan war, but we don't target Afghan civilians. They are, I mean, this is, un, this is one of the horrible things about war and I'm not in any way endorsing it, but this is what is euphemistically called collateral damage. What we were targeting were combatants, Taliban, uh, Al Qaeda, people like this. And if they happened to be in an area and civilians were injured or killed, that's the unfortunate price of war. And again, I'm not in any way trying to say this is good. I'm just saying this is what happens in war. It's why war is bad. Now, when we think about uh, what's gone on within the context of uh, Israel and Hamas, I have said many times, Israel has not been any more restrictive towards Arabs than they are forced to be for their own protection. And that's really a summary of what you just said. The walls that people complain about, those were built because they needed to do something to stop suicide bombers from coming in and blowing up buses and malls. And I remember that intifada period. I, I mean, many of our listeners probably do as well. But because of the 24-hour news cycle these days, people don't tend to remember things very well. But it was a horrible, bloody time. And Israelis hardly dared go anywhere. And the body count was going higher and higher and higher. And Israel finally said, we have to do this because we have to stop it. And now suddenly the narrative gets shifted to, well, Israel is putting people into death camps and these are concentration camps and Israel is coming against the Arabs. But you just said, historically, that was not what happened. And so the very things that people are commenting on, they need to understand the history because these are things Israel did in reaction because they needed to defend themselves against what was starting to look like what happened on October 7th of this right. year. Hamas's perspective is an Islamist perspective, which means because Israel was conquered by jihad in 635 to 638, it can never be controlled by anyone else except jihadi Muslims. Israel has no right to be there. So yes, they're occupying land, which according to Islam, they have forfeited. 
Okay, but if you don't buy what Islam says, then we have the Bible. And the Bible says that God's giving that land to the Jews. So what's happened there is it's not a question of what we do. It's a question that we exist. And that's the whole point. You cannot negotiate with people who are committed to destroying you. And this is so important to understand with Hamas. Anyone should read their charter. Go to Google, Hamas charter, read it. They basically say, we're not going to stop until either we're dead or you're dead. No negotiations. And so that's why when somebody says, we're not yet at the time for a ceasefire, Hamas does not believe in ceasefires. They say, I'm willing to stop a tabiyah, a little bit of a, a hubna for a few days, a few months, and then I'm going to kill you. They're very, very clear. And they even came out saying, we're not stopping with the Jews. We're going to take out all the Christians in the world, too. But people, right. if they don't know this, they think, you know, what's the problem here? Why can't you negotiate? I don't remember America negotiating with bin Laden. I don't remember negotiating with Japan or Germany. There was unconditional surrender. And so this is where Israel's going. We need unconditional surrender. And there's many forces who are pushing us and pressuring us to say, no, 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 no. It's fine. You can work with them. Throw some money at them. They'll understand. Most Israelis say, forget it. It's no longer. It's the old New York statement. Forget about it. It's not yeah. going to work anymore. And that's why I think it's so important for people to understand a lot of this history. Um, people, many times, their, their brains fogged and they, you know, their eyes glaze over when we start talking about history. Uh, but I, we didn't actually get through our, my initial question. So let's let's circulate back to that. We're, look, we're trying to trace the roughly 90 years between the end of the First World War and the exit of Israel from, uh, from Gaza in 2005. Tell us about some of the other signal milestones. We've got this Balfour Declaration, yeah, well, uh, and then we've go. got the War of Liberation or Independence, and then we've got the 67 and 73. Walk us through that whole narrative. Sure. We could do that in about 60 seconds. Um, the Egyptians were there. Uh, and in control. Uh, the British were there. Of course, they left in 48. Uh, Egypt annexed the Gaza Strip and was in charge from 1948 to 1967. They allowed the Palestinians no freedom. They, it was a dictatorship. They set up machine gun nests on the border. No Palestinians go into Egypt. Very, very tough, uh, hard, Wuhabarat, their secret agency. In, in 1967, Israel took over that area and was in charge of it. Okay, there was a little brief period of a few months in the 56 war Sana campaign. It's not time for it now. But from 67 onward, Israel's been in charge. Now, uh, what happened is uh, the PLO at that point was a terror group. It's like the Red Brigades, the IRA, the Japanese Red Army, uh, Terror International. And they were much involved with, uh, with killing Israelis. And unfortunately, if you study... Uh, the Red Prince, look under Google, the Red Prince was a CIA-supported and trained agent, uh, part of the PLO. And that's where the Munich story comes from, too, as well. In any case, what happened is... Um, Tell them the Munich story, though. I think that's a really important data point that many people either don't know about or have forgotten. The Munich story is not the Munich movie. This was one of Spielberg's low points. Uh, it was because the screenplay guy had his own agenda, he's a Jewish guy, but he didn't like Israel and he falsified a lot of history. 
there's a book by George Jonas called Vengeance. And if you read that book, that'll tell you mostly what happened there. In any case, the PLO came to the Munich Olympics and in 72 and massacred nearly the entire uh, Israeli team. Black September was the name of their group. And uh, Israel ended up chasing down many of the ringleaders and taking them out. And uh, the, the movie is actually not very, very accurate at all. It's very much a peacenik thing. And, and uh, you know, there was an American general who said, uh, I hear you guys saying you want to die for your country. I don't want you to die for your country. I want the other son of a gun to die for his country. And that's kind of what we're talking about. So what happened is when Israel wanted to lessen the control of this murderous PLO group, they encouraged an Islamic charity, okay, called uh, Mujama Islamiyah, which uh, was the precursor of Hamas back in 73. They encouraged them to do more social welfare, to feed people, to set up an Islamic university and do this. And who was in charge of it? A fellow named Sheikh Ahmed Yassin. Sheikh Ahmed Yassin, while he was receiving this help, he was in a wheelchair, uh, while he was receiving this encouragement from Israel to be <coughs> counterbalanced to a verified international terror group, he began to plot setting up Hamas. Uh, it was discovered that he was hiding weapons in uh, mosques in Gaza and that they were involved in capturing and killing Israelis. So he went to jail and he was released in a prisoner exchange at one point in 85. And then he started in 87, 88 with Hamas. And Hamas drew up a charter that you can read, and they basically said, we're going to establish an Islamist state, and we're going to kill Israel and drive them totally out of the whole land, because that's what the Quran says we're supposed to do. And then Israel began to deal with trying to get rid of Hamas, but that was very, very hard, because Hamas hides among civilians, and civilians give it shelter. So when they began, uh, when Israel began to withdraw 2004, 2005, there were no more Israelis left in Gaza. Totally no Israelis, no control, nothing. Okay. And what happened is then Hamas began to, uh, when they had an election, which was sponsored by Jimmy Carter, and they came to power and then they began to kill all the PLO people who were in charge there, kneecapping them, throwing off roofs, etc. They set up an Islamic dictatorship like the Islamic Republic in Iran. And what they then began to do is develop networks of rocket launchers. And it's a double war crime because they were shooting rockets from Gazan civilian areas into Israeli civilian areas. So when, when Israel had to come in, they would come in and say, good, now we've set it up with booby traps and mines. We're going to kill you. We're going to kidnap you. We're going to take your bodies and give the body back in exchange for a thousand soldiers or whatever. And so what happened is more and more Hamas began to develop a network of underground tunnels, which rivaled and surpassed what the Viet Cong did in Vietnam. And they, uh, for the past, uh, since about 2007, they have been terrorizing all the areas around Gaza, the ones that they invaded just now, as well as firing rockets toward uh, Ashdod, Ashkelon, even Tel Aviv, and where we live in Beersheba. So this has been their goal, and they're very clear about it. And their finance, their main financer, Apart from Iran is Qatar, where uh, where America has its fifth fleet connections and uh, Al Obaid Air Force Base um, and uh, and Al Jazeera, which a lot of Americans watch. It's all connected to the Muslim Brotherhood. 
They're the main bank rollers in Qatar and Iran for Hamas. And uh, so when Qatar says, we want to help uh, work out the hostage issues, Qatar is the one who paid for the hostages to be taken. So this is this is hugely um, obscene, and it's what's going on. But most Americans don't know about this here. But the ones right. in the top, the ones in the top do. So 2005, no more Israelis. That's when all the rockets started against us. So there's no occupation going on. But where's occupation? Well, we have a city called Tel Aviv, Jerusalem, Haifa, and that's the point. They want Jews out of everywhere. They don't want any Jews anymore. Right. And that's the point. It's not that we're occupying Gaza. It's that they say we're occupying all Muslim lands. We need to go. Right. We're not going to go. We're not going to go. So you have a situation where they say, if you don't go, we'll kill you forever. It's like Hook, where he says, if you don't fight me, Peter, I'm going to come back and fight your children from generation to generation. That's what we're dealing with right now. Right. So that's a that's a great explanation of the the map of the playing field right now. Um, just a couple of clarifying points for our listeners. When Avner says Qatar, uh, this is the Arabic way to say the nation that most English speakers say Qatar. So Q-A-T-A-R is the name of the country. Um, but again, the Arabic way to say it is Qatar. And Avner simply pronouncing it correctly. But what he's also saying is that even though this is a apparently uh, peaceful nation, there's there's a strong undercurrent within that country, which is supporting the Muslim Brotherhood, which was the predecessor to Hamas. And when they were driven out of Egypt, they, they basically moved to Gaza and set up shop there, changed their name. But it's the same people doing the same stuff. And, and so what, what you could have missed in this dialogue, and again, I'm just trying to clarify a few key anchor points for people, is that Egypt is an Arab nation. And when we talk about nations like, well, Jordan or Qatar, these are generally viewed as Arab nations. So what what we have are Palestinians who are being held at arm's length by Arabs. And I don't think people always appreciate that Palestinians and Arabs are not the same ethnic group. On the one hand, Arabs tend to support Palestinians because they're fellow uh, Muslims. It, it, it's like what Christians say, you know, we're all brothers in Christ we don't always act like brothers in Christ and neither do Muslims act like their fellow Muslim brothers. And so there's a, there's a recognition and you, the actions tell you that there is a recognition among the Arab nations that these particular groups like Hamas, while on the one hand they're financing them, they're also, it's a little bit like playing with a lit stick of dynamite and they want to hold them at arm's length. You want to comment further on that, Abner? Sure. I would, I, you know what they say about cutting the baloney so thin that there's only one side. I had a teacher once who talked about that expression. The term <laughs> Arab actually doesn't refer to a people. You have this issue of jihad where they basically rolled across North Africa and the Middle East, and they took about over 140 different ethnic groups, forced them to uh, accept Islam, forced them to speak Arabic, and told them, now you're all Arabs. Very few people, the word Arab comes from the word like the word Arava. It means from a salty, desolate plain. So it's not a, actually a religious term uh, or, an, or a racial term. So when we talk about Egypt, for instance, you've got three main different groups. You've got the original Hamitic Egyptians, like it says in Psalms, where the Egyptians are not Semitic. Then you've got the Sudanese, 
who are up in the south, and they're also not Semitic. And then you've got some of the Is Ishmaelite invaders who definitely were Semitic. So it's a mixture of all three. The original Egyptian Coptics are the Hamitic original Egyptians. The Palestinians, that's a new term. There never was a country by that name. When you said Palestinian before 1948, you could mean Jews just as often as you could mean Arabs. The term Palestinian comes from the, the Romans after they conquered uh, in 135 the Bar Kokhba revolt, and they basically said, we want to choose a name which will be a curse to the Jews. What's the Jews' main enemy in the Bible? And they said, well, the Philistines. Well, they said, okay, in Latin, that's Palestina. We'll call the country by the name of the enemy of the Jews. That's the origin of that. There were no Arabs living here at that time. So the Palestinians are actually, their history goes back more than any other group to Edom. And Edom, if you study in the book of Ezekiel and other places, you'll see that Edom uh, is one of the major names used for the last day's enemy of the Jewish people. And if somebody wants to look at Ezekiel 25, you'll see uh, that God says that he's going to inflict vengeance on Edom through the hands of his people Israel. But that's another issue, not for right now. All I'm saying is, if you're talking about people who are descended from Abraham in the Middle East, there's nearly none. If you talk about people who are descended from Shem, there are some. If you talk about uh, uh, Ishmaelites, very few, mostly in certain parts of Saudi Arabia. That's why the Abrahamic Accords, they have nothing to do with Abraham as far as the United Arab Emirates is concerned. Because the Arab right. Emirates say, we're not from Abraham, we're from Shem. But it goes over well with American evangelicals. So again, when we use the term Palestinian, we're mostly talking about Edomites. And then we bring in the whole biblical issue, which most people don't know much about. So a couple of other clarifying points, because again, some of our listeners may not be familiar. You use the name Shem. Um, I know what you mean by that, but unpack it for our listeners who may not know this name. Yes, three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, or in Hebrew, Shem, Ham, and Yepheth. And so Shem would be what we call the Semitic peoples. Certain linguistic scholars don't like to call a racial word to Shem, but the Bible sets it up in Genesis 10 that there are all kinds of nations who are descended from Shem. So, for instance, you mentioned Indonesia. They're not from Abraham and they're not from Shem. Okay, It's the biggest Muslim country in the world, no Arabs. If you talk about Iran, they say we're not Arabs. Okay, They're Aryans, the original Aryans. If you that's talk right. about Syria, they're not from Shem, they're Arameans. Okay, that's not from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob at all. The Lebanese are Phoenicians, that's Canaanite, that's not from Shem either. And so there's a lot of different issues where we have a kind of a Sunday school romanticism about the Middle East. We're talking about healing of the sons of Abraham. And that's really not the issue going on. We're talking about an attempt to destroy the sons of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And that's a very biblical theme. Yeah. So it says of Ishmael that he will be a wild ox of a man and his hand will be against everyone. Not and, ox, not ox, wild ass of a man. Oh, sorry. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Wild donkey. All right. So, uh, so that's a, what, that's a partially positive term, by the way, because the word is pere, pere adam. And pere is a wild donkey. And when I was doing some, uh, Filming with my son with a drone out in the Western Negev, we ran into herds of wild donkeys. They're very, very beautiful. But what it means is you can't domesticate them. Right. They're nobody's fool. 
and they're right. basically they love to be out in the wild and and no one's going to control them that's okay. what it means so as we think about all of that what we're what we're talking about is something that I don't know if it's like a prophetic word or just a characteristic of the nation or maybe a little bit of both, but we're talking about all of these descendants of Ishmael have a particular, well, they're not easily domesticated. They don't necessarily want to play nice all the time. Um, and most, and that, most, of, most of the Arab and Muslim world has nothing to do with Ishmael, just so you understand. Understood that. No, I got that quite yes, clearly. Sir. I'm just, I'm just unpacking this idea that, Abraham had two sons. One was not the son of promise, and that was Ishmael. And the other one was the son of promise, and that was Isaac. The Jews come out of Isaac and Jacob, who becomes renamed Israel, thus the people of Israel. Um, and then you've got this, Islam seems to have spread among, as you were saying, I'm just, again, trying to summarize, Islam seems to have taken particular root among the people of Ishmael, the Shemites, uh, and people like this. And so they're different ethno-linguistic groups. And when people are talking about the Abraham Accords, what they're really saying is that whether it's Judaism or Christianity or Islam, they all claim to be monotheist, one God. And as a result, when we talk about the Abraham Accords, since all of these people in one way or another lay some claim to Abraham, and they're all monotheistic. Uh, wouldn't it be great if among these monotheists, they could get together and make peace? I think that's really the underlying idea. And I would say, again, I, I appreciate that. And I think there's some truth that that's how some people see it. The Bible happens to say three things which disagree with that. The first one is, there is a God and he has a name. And his name is Yahweh. Yes. He says, this is my name forever. Yes. Okay? Never changes. He says, I choose Jerusalem, I choose the Jewish people, I curse those who curse them, I bless those who bless them. Right. I don't choose Ishmael. Messiah comes in the flesh, God in the flesh, which is denied by Islam. Jerusalem's centrality is denied by Islam. The right. And where does the name Allah come from? Well, uh, Muhammad's father's name is Abdullah, which means a slave or servant of Allah. Allah was one of the 360 deities who were worshipped in the Kaaba in Mecca. Okay, uh, we don't, from a biblical perspective, assume that you can choose one of 360 and call that the one true biblical God. Abraham and Muhammad's father didn't see him as the one true God. However, when you're interested in counterfeiting a biblical religion, you take this one demon from Mecca and you call him the one true God. And so what we have with Islam, in my understanding, is it's not monotheism, but monodemonism. Interesting. All right. So what you've, what you've also said in that is a particular deity, and, and by the way, for those who don't know why Avner said what he said, the scriptures themselves affirm that all the gods of the nations are demons. Any other god beyond Yahweh is a demonic entity, masquerading maybe as a god, possibly even putting on a nice face. Uh, there's a god in the Chinese culture called Guan Yin. Supposedly, she is the goddess of mercy, but I've driven enough Guan Yin spirits out of people to know she's not actually a goddess of mercy. She torments the people whom she controls. So back to my thread here, or my train of thought. So we have 360 gods in Mecca. 
one gets selected, this one is known as Allah. And so Avner used the term monodemonism because any other God beyond Yahweh is a demon. And you can look this up in Psalm 106, verses 36 and 37. You can also see Paul alluding to this very fact in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, particularly verses 18 through 24. So um, so that's where Avner gets the idea of monodemonism. We're not trying to demonize as much as to just use biblical language. Um, and with that, we understand that, in fact, Islam emerges from something that is actually polytheistic. That's very true. Yeah. That's very true. The thing, of course, you know, Ken, and we're living in a very impoverished world spiritually where people don't know the scriptures, don't That's know right. what Paul said, don't know what Yeshua said, don't know what Yahweh said through the prophets. And so sometimes these things come as a huge shock. And all it means is people don't know the scriptures. You That's see, right. my friend at the head of the Israeli FBI, he doesn't believe the scriptures. I'm not expecting him to. And I'm not expecting the the head of the CIA, who at one point was a practicing Muslim, to agree with me. And I know most Americans don't even have a biblical framework to work with, and they don't believe in the things of the Spirit. So I understand that. But I think God does. I think he believes in these things. Right. Well, I think God understands his own word. And last I checked, he doesn't lie. He doesn't change. There's no shadow of turning. So yep. he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And what he said once continues to be true. We change. And sometimes the sentiments or the mores or the customs or the whatever, the memes of our time may mil militate against the truths that the Lord has, has spoken. But that doesn't mean that the truths have changed. It means right. that we need to bow the knee to those truths. And it means we won't be politically correct. Often. That's correct. All right, so let's uh, let me ask a question that you you've touched on, but I want to I want to have you expand on this just a little bit. If God gave the land of Israel to the Jews, the land that we call Israel, that piece of property in the Levant where three continents come together, um, if God gave this land to the Jews, and this is documented in the scriptures, and the Jews were in the land thousands of years before there was anybody known as Palestinian, if this is all true, then in what sense can the return of the Jews to, the, to their own homeland be viewed as imperialistic as it is commonly being portrayed in the press? Well, it has to. it's a blending of two different opposing philosophies. One is communism and one is Islamism. According to communism, uh, you have colonialism that needs to be uh, stopped and destroyed. So Franz Fanon and the Wretched of the Earth, which strongly has influenced the Black Lives Matter movement, but that's another issue. But that concept is if you have come into this land and you're not from that land, then you need to be thrown out of that land through violence. Okay, so that's liberation theology, communism, etc. But then the other perspective is if you believe that this land was conquered by Islam for Islam, then you're saying the Jews are imperialistic. But actually, no, it's a con it's a conflict of two different empires. You've got the kingdom of God established through Israel, and you've got Amen. the kingdom of Allah established through Muhammad's Jaish, his army. And so the question is not which one is imperialistic. They both are. The point is God is setting up his kingdom in Jerusalem and not in St. Louis. 
And he's saying, I'm setting it up through the Jewish people. The Messiah is going to come to Jerusalem. And the law and the teaching is all going to come out of Jerusalem. So it really depends what narrative you buy into. Does one buy into the Quranic narrative? Does one buy into the communist narrative? Or does one buy into the biblical narrative? Unfortunately, mm -hmm. most people don't know what the biblical narrative is. And so they hear on mainstream media about all these other things, and they think it must be true. We're having an amazing thing happening. We, the Jews are forcing the Christians to take their Bible seriously. You know, right. Joshua can't be from God. You know, uh, Moses can't be from God. Uh, blood sacrifice can't be from God. Um, war can't be from God. You know, all these pietistic um, things that come out of uh, those Christians who were being crushed by the Catholic Church in Europe become then the only way to understand the scripture. But David didn't just write Psalms. He said, Blessed be the Lord my God who trains my hands for battle and my fingers, my hands for war and my fingers for the battle. We don't know that God, most of us. We're estranged. We're, 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 we're put off by him. And so God brings the Jewish people back to this land and says, you know, world, pay attention. See what I'm doing. See the victories I'm giving them. See that I'm restoring them. I will bring heaven down to earth. Right? How did Yeshua said that will be done on earth as it is in heaven? And part right. of what it's using to teach the church that is the Jewish people. So this really leads us to a very interesting point um, that in the scriptures, it says that the Lord will cause Jerusalem to become a stumbling block to all the nations. And of course, part of the conflict in Jerusalem, it's not just over the Levant. I mean, it's the city of Jerusalem. And we have this mosque known as the Al-Aqsa Mosque and also a few meters away on the south end of the Temple Mount, the Al-Kibli Mosque, we have these two mosques that represent um, Islam's attempt to dominate the Temple Mount, which is where the Holy of Holies is. And, and many people know, but some don't. So again, I'm just elaborating that the Golden Dome of the Rock Mosque, the Al-Aqsa Mosque, sits directly over what would have been the Holy of Holies at another era of history. And so this is also part of Islam attempting to assert its hegemony over what was Jewish. We have this, this thing where there's this, as people say, the most hotly contested piece of real estate on earth, and it's you know a few hundred acres, is, is that area around the Wailing Wall, the Temple Mount, um, all that area up there. It's not that big. The, the Al-Aqsa complex is 35 acres total. And so notwithstanding that this is the most hotly contested piece of real estate on earth and it's it's interesting that uh even though there's no evidence that uh that muhammad ever went to jerusalem at all except maybe in a dream maybe uh the muslim community continues laying claim to the temple mount Listen, and i think I, the reason go ahead go ahead in my dreams i've been to hawaii <laughs> Yeah, there's that. So I think part of the reason that that scripture is there, that, that God will cause Jerusalem to become a stumbling block to all the nations, is I don't care if you're as far away as Indonesia or in Washington or London or San Francisco or I don't know what's further away, Anchorage, Alaska or uh, Santiago de Chile. I don't care where you are. It seems that the attention of the entire world continues being drawn back to Jerusalem and to Israel and to the Jewish people. 
and to the Holy Land and to all these issues that we're talking about. So the question is, why? Why did God decide to make this the focal point? And I think you've already answered it just a moment ago. Again, I'm just clarifying for our listeners who may not be following as clearly. I think God has done this because it is his intention to draw the attention of the entire earth to the fact that Messiah is going to set up his throne on the Temple Mount. And consequently, you cannot avoid this. And sooner or later, every eye will see him when he appears. And there will be many who will say, well, I won't say it because this is a Christian podcast, but oh, no. And they will call for the mountains and rocks to fall upon them. And God is allowing these things to happen so that the attention of the entire earth is focused on this one called Yeshua HaMashiach or Jesus. Yeah, I I agree with you, of course. Um, One of the things, again, somebody once said, if what God chooses to love, Satan chooses to hate. And so there is a love that God has here. And I always try to point that out. It's not just a huge chess game. God has a passion uh, for the Jewish people, talks about them as his first kiss. And so the issue of setting up a uh, Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Dome of the Rock, both of them on the Temple Mount, is a replacement theology in a major, major way trying to replace what God said. And it's a judgment on us as well, and the enemy taking advantage of that as well. So I think this is very, very um, important when we understand spiritual warfare. You know, Joshua was sent in, Moses was sent in, against all the gods of Egypt while I uh, execute my judgment through the Passover. With spiritual warfare using physical means. Joshua. That's right. And the captain of the Lord's armies, you know, and people preach about this and they miss it. He says, are you for us or against us? And people say, you see, God is not for the Jews or against the Jews. Not at all. That's not true. Joshua was there representing the God of Israel who was telling him to destroy Jericho. He knew what side was on. He was obedient. What he meant is you're in a closed military area. Are you friend or foe? That's all yes. he meant. So when people preach about it that way and make it a pacifistic thing, they miss the whole point. Because that captain of the armies, Yahweh, uh, captain of the armies of Yahweh said to, to Joshua, you're going to go in and you're going to do this and you're going to take them out. So the, the blending of spiritual and physical warfare was something that C.S. Lewis was working on in his book, um, Paralandra, of the, of the Paralandra Trilogy. He said, when does spiritual warfare become physical? And again, if you were living during the Nazi times, you would say, I think right now. Yes. And that's what we're dealing with right now with Gaza. So on that theme, you know, as soon as I heard about what was happening on October 7th, I was actually uh, in Ukraine and uh, preparing to return home. So we were hearing things, but it was, well, as they say, it was early days. I mean, it was just the, you know, very early hours of the morning and, there was a lot of uh, confusion and the, the facts on the ground were not well understood. But when I heard it, I thought nobody does this, especially when you're choosing off somebody like Israel, which is, I think, the fourth most powerful army on Earth. Nobody does this and something. They do something to begin or initiate. We might even say to provoke something. And if we understand this spiritual warfare paradigm that you've just described, tell us what you think Hamas was trying to initiate or trigger or detonate by the slaughter of October 7th. 
So there's a general Islamist philosophy, which is kill the infidels and take over their land. That's day in and day out. But specifically, because Hamas and Islamic Jihad and Hezbollah and Syria and the Houthis receive the majority of their backing and money from Iran, Iran has its own goals here. And part of what we see, I would say probably three different areas. One, Iran sees itself and the Shiite Islam it represents as the one who's going to take over the whole world and the Middle East. Saudi Arabia is an obstacle. They're deadly enemies to them because they're the heads of where Sunni Islam is. So America's talking with Saudi Arabia and Israel to work out a mutual defense pact. Iran says, you know what? I'm going to throw something into the pot here. And that's part reason, one of the reasons. Iran yep. has been training and supplying Islamic Jihad and Hamas and Hezbollah and Syria and the Houthis in order to create a combined attack on Israel. And they've said it very clearly. You can find it on Google. They believe that their job is to initiate a world war of Islam against the main American ally in, in the Middle East to destroy it and then to begin to destroy all the other countries who will not bend the knee to Shiite Islam. So to them, it's very strategic, and they are hoping that Hezbollah will join. And again, I've been writing some newsletters that people can get if they want to read it at davidstent.org, yep. where I talk about all the links and uh, who's saying what from what military perspective on this. They are hoping that this is going to trigger into a regional war, which will then turn into a world war, which will then turn into the final jihad war. That's their eschatology. They really believe this. They're very clear about it. They're not hiding it. And so this is what they're hoping. And uh, to be able to say, well, you know, America says we've got a problem with some anti-Semitism coming here. We have to teach a little bit about it. No, it's a spiritual issue. With right. the, They've released something with their slaughter, which has turned anti-Semitism in the world up on steroids. And Absolutely. If you go to Revelation 12, you see that the enemy, when his time is short, tries to kill the Jews. And that's kind of what we're dealing with somewhere in that chapter right now. Yeah, that's um, that the comment you just made about the increase in anti-Semitism. I saw a report yesterday that there had been 280 incidents of anti-Semitic violence in the UK in the previous 24 hours, 600 incidents of it. I think it was in Germany, might have been France, but anyway, one or the other, Central Europe. Uh, many American Jews who are attending university are afraid to leave their dorm rooms for fear of violence on campus against them for nothing other than being Jewish. And That's so Andy Semitism, yeah, it is. It's, it's happening. happening. And in it's fact, happening. I saw a news report from this morning. There was a jetliner that landed in Dagestan, which is a southern area of Russia, and it's a Muslim area of Russia. And they were literally, I saw the video, and you could tell this was not something that had been photoshopped. There were mobs in the airport shouting, Allahu Akbar, breaking down doors, looking for any Jews who happened to have come in so they could kill them. We're going back 150 years ago. Fiddler on the Roof had a pogrom at the wedding of Tevye's daughter. That was Hollywood sanitized. But what happened back in Kishinev and all those areas going back 140 years ago it's it's getting ready to happen again. And um, 
again, for those who are Bible students who don't have a heart for people, at least it's a prophetic last days event. But if you have God's heart, it's a time for intercession. It's a time for standing up. What's going to happen if we need more Corey Ten Booms in this world? Who's ready? Yeah. Amen. Amen. Well, we're just about out of time, Avner. Let me just ask you a question that probably could be its own podcast, but let's just do it in a minute or two. What options does Israel have besides invading Gaza? Are there any options? Could they even work? Well, first of all, we have invaded Gaza. The reason we didn't say it the first night is because of American pressure. So we went in for two hours and then we came out after two hours. Then we went into the next day on Friday night and we haven't come out yet. We have a full tank invasion. We have special operations forces. We have air. Everything is going in there. The difficulty is that Hamas hopes there will be as many Gazan casualties who are civilians so that this will put pressure on Israel so that they can survive by having Gazans die as human shields. They don't yes. care about the Palestinians. And also from Islam, they don't care about individual countries. They see it as one whole Islamic state in the whole world. They're not internationalism. And they're not internationalism in Gaza. So Israel is trying, and I, I once spoke to Colonel Richard Kemp, who was the commander of uh, NATO forces in the, the uh, Bosnian war. And he said, there's no army in the world which cares as much about avoiding civilian casualties as Israel. And he says that compared to America and compared to the UK, etc. So Israel's trying very much to avoid civilian casualties. The problem is Hamas terrorists are shooting from behind the backs of civilians. They're stacking their rockets and their bombs in mosques, in schools. They are uh, not allowing, I've seen videos, terrible videos of Gazans who are literally being shot by Hamas and thrown into pits if they're trying to leave the area where Israel said, get out of here so we don't want to hurt you. They're killing their own people uh, because of this. So basically, Israel is trying as much as possible to avoid civilian casualties, but the only way we can break Hamas's power is one at a time. And that yeah. means, uh, okay, you can do a lot from the air, but America never won Vietnam from the air. Yeah. And so it has to be a land war. And yep. uh, the question is, are we going to have the stick to to break the power? Because unless there is an unconditional surrender, it's just going to go on. Yeah, that's what Israel's looking at. That's what so this is for. this is what we call the hard, gritty business of war. And it is it's ugly. It's bloody. It's violent. People suffer and die. And yet the Bible does say there is a time for war as well as a time for peace. And I think people have wanted to make it that it's always about peace. And certainly in the end, we have a prince of peace who will rule and there will be peace. But between here and there, if we read the scriptures, it's very clear that the shuddering end of this age is a very, I don't know, it, it spasms with violence and war. Yeah. yeah. And again, the enemy goes after when he is anti-Jew, he's anti-Christ. That's right. A lot of people don't understand that, and they think, well, what are the Jews? They don't believe. They're not under God's protection. And I would say, well, what is grace? I thought grace meant undeserved uh, favor. That's yes. how we get saved. 
So if God wants to bring Israel back and give them undeserved favor, unmerited favor, is that all right with us? And if he says, I'm going to judge the world based on whether the world stands for and with the Jewish people, are we prepared to take the consequences if we don't? Well, this is the thing. We, we have to stand with God and his people and his purposes, and there may well be a price to pay for that. Jesus warned that that was the case. All right. Well, Avner, thank you so much for joining us today and giving us an on-the-ground perspective, as well as a historical retrospective and a prophetic forward look uh, of where all of this is going. We'll probably have you back again soon to talk about some more of all of this because people are very interested in it. And honestly, I think we need this balanced biblical approach uh, to override a lot of the narrative that's going on in the mainstream media. Well, I'm so delighted to have spent the time with you, Ken. It's always a privilege. All right. Well, uh, would you pray for us as we close, just uh, sure. that, that our eyes would continue to stay open to the spiritual realities that are behind all of this? Yes. So, Father, we come to you in Yeshua's name, in Jesus' name. And, Lord, we grieve that the enemy has not only infiltrated the church, but he's infiltrated the Arabic-speaking peoples, and uh, he's created such murderous darkness for them and put them in the role of coming under judgment by judging your people. And Father, that's a grievous thing. And Father, yet even our own people, the Jewish people, we don't know you, most of us. You've called us back, but we're dry bones. And Father, here we have the rise of a new Hitler, a new ISIS, a new Nazi, and the world is turning against us once again. And so, Father, we pray that you would shout in our pains to us and we would call out to you and look upon you whom we've pierced and mourned for you as one mourns for an only son, that we would come into the fullness of the spirit through the gift of repentance, ruach chen v'tachanonim, the spirit of grace and of supplications, and that we would know you. And Father, we pray that you would preserve as much human life as is possible. But we also pray, Father, that you would destroy those who are beyond repentance, who have given over themselves so fully to the enemy. Father, would you take them out and bring them to a better place for them, for us and for everybody? But Father, we ask that you would pour out your repentance. I remember when I was in Hebron, as Saddam Hussein's scuds were coming over toward my family. And I heard people screaming, murder the Jews, slaughter the Jews. And I said, Lord, would you save those who you can save here? And would you deal with the rest according to your wisdom? Yeah. So, Father, we ask that in Yeshua's name. And we ask that you would preserve the lives of my friends who are in the army and my son's friends who are in the army. Those who are dealing right now fighting the Al-Qaeda who is in Gaza, fighting the ISIS, which is in Gaza. Give them wisdom. Train their hands for war, protect them, and help them to cause the least amount of damage and loss of human life as possible. Father, have mercy on this area, and we ask Yeshua that you would come quickly and establish your throne in Jerusalem as you promised. We ask this in Jesus' name, in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. Well, Avner, thanks again for joining us, and it's always a pleasure to be with you and talk with you. And uh, I'll look forward to seeing you soon. Take care of California. All right. I'll do my best. Bye-bye. <laughs> shalom, shalom.